Turn with me to the uh, first uh, chapter of Ma- uh, Matthew for our, our scripture reading this morning. This is the Word of God. The book of the genealogy, um, Genesis, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Abinadad. And Abinadad, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, and the father, uh, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, uh, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of uh, Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of uh, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Pray again with me, please. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our minds to receive your wisdom today and glorify Jesus in our hearts. Enlighten our minds. Illumine our hearts. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, Years ago, my mother wrote a family history. Uh, Really, it's a genealogy uh, in story form. And uh, mom, of course, was uh, of German and Dutch roots, and my dad was, uh, was uh, Scottish uh, with some English strains as well. Though oddly, um, neither, of my, uh, neither on neither side of my ancestry did anyone enter the United States through Ellis Island. Now, my mom came from a respectable family. In fact, uh, they owned 
uh, a good portion, uh, I don't know exactly how large, but a number of acres in Brooklyn. And we, could we see this slide, please? Uh, m- my son, I think, t- think took this a-, a-, a little while back. You cannot see it too well, but the, the-, the street coming towards us is Remsen. And that is my mother's maiden name. Uh, F. Norma Remsen was her name. And, and the other one says Henry. And Henry is the name of one of my grandfathers. And so their ancestry was significant enough and respectable enough that these streets were named for them. Um, My ancestors owned a chunk of Brooklyn. Not a square inch now, but anyway, that was, that was what, and I was expecting as I went through long, long thoughts, read the, the book that my mother wrote, I was, I was hoping for when I came on my father's side, uh, he was Scottish, remember, um, some, uh, a, a line perhaps, or even just one Scottish Presbyterian minister. They were known for that. What, what, uh, we found instead was that one of my ancestors on my father's side was a horse thief. So as you look back on your family now, you can see uh, on your ancestors, you can see things to be thankful for. And, and even in a sense of godly pride for, for, their, for, for, their, for their work. You can also be embarrassed. You might also be ashamed of something that you have seen. Jesus' genealogy, a little bit long, a little bit difficult to get through, actually tells a shocking story and, dear friends, revolutionizes the way you see God, revolutionizes the way we understand the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing we notice and this was rare at that time, that a number of women are mentioned in this genealogy. Uh, The Bible, unique for its time, held women in high regard. Not so in the culture in which the Bible was written. Uh, Women were seen uh, as uh, having the status of a servant. But as we look at this genealogy today, we notice there are several who are inconspicuous by their absence. Who is not there that you would expect to be there? Of anyone you would expect Sarah, the the wife of Abraham, or her daughter-in-law, Rachel, or uh, the two two children of Rebekah and Isaac, uh, Rachel and Leah. You'd expect that. You'd expect that. But who is there that you would have expected to be omitted? At all costs, you should have omitted Tamar. Reading a commentary on Genesis some time ago, uh, one writer cavalierly said, the st- chapter 38, in the middle of the Joseph narrative, should just, shouldn't even be there. There's, there's no redemptive quality to it, but it's right there in the story of God saving his people out of Egypt. It's right there. And it's right here in the middle of the gospel story as well. In Genesis chapter 38, we read that her husband, 
Tamar's husband had died, and the father-in-law had refused to give her the third son. There was a, there was a tradition called leveret marriage, where if a, a, a woman uh, died without offspring, uh, then the deceased husband's brother would be next in line to marry her to produce seed for uh, the, uh, the retain uh, ownership of the land and honor for the mother and means to live for the mother. Truth be told, there was another son that was did that did marry and she and she, and, and he died. So you can understand uh, her father-in-law being a little bit. Hesitant. Tamar, however, recognized that she was being defrauded, so she dressed as a prostitute and she lured her father-in-law to be intimate with her, became pregnant, and her father-in-law's outrage was a key element here. Uh, She is more righteous, or, or rather, she should be burned is what he first said. Then she produces uh, his signet ring, uh, his staff that he had, and a sandal that he had left on deposit. I'll pay you later, but take these on deposit. So as he, as her pregnancy becomes known, uh, it is spread around, um, and and uh, and she is to be brought for justice. And his first comments at that point: she should be burned. She produces the incriminating element, and he does finally say, she is more righteous than I. But there she is. She is manipulative, but she also carries the stain of prostitution. He is marked by his injustice and his propositioning his daughter-in-law. Focusing on Tamar for the day, what she did and what was done to her are both shameful. Cause for shame. Sinned against, but then managing that circumstance on her own. Tamar represents a particularly shameful time in the history of of, uh, God's people and in the line of Jesus. And then there's Rahab. Rahab is known even today as a prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. Never mind that in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, she is commended for her faith because she was friendly uh, to the Israelite spies, saved their lives, and was, was instrumental uh, in the Israelites taking the land of Canaan. And yet she is publicly marked by a shameful past. What she did. This is in verse 5. Ruth, different story. Um, she has steadfast love for her mother, mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, in fact, the book is characterized by her steadfast love, her chesed, her, her faithfulness to a covenant. And yet, she was shameful too. By association, she was a Moabitess, and the Moabites had been very inhospitable to Israel when they came into the land. And so it was said of the Moabites, uh, they shall be rejected, they shall be prohibited from entering into the people of God down to the tenth generation, which is another way of saying never. Never. 
the, the Moabite nation were considered outcasts, separate from God's people. And amazingly, the story of Ruth ends with Naomi, her mother-in-law, sitting there with, with Jesus on her lap. Well, at least one of Jesus' ancestors, the promised baby, came through this line. And then, of course, there is Bathsheba, verse 6, who is not even mentioned by name. What was essential was that people remembered as if they could forget that she was the one uh, whom uh, David uh, lusted after, coveted, stole another man's wife, lied about it, had her husband killed. Bathsheba experiences another kind of shame. This shame that is because of another's sin. Shame um, comes from what we have done, from what others have done to us, or even by association if you have a horse thief in your family tree. Finally, there's Mary, uh, whose entire life must have been covered by a cloud of suspicion. It's an unbelievable story to tell, isn't it, that you were impregnated by the Holy Spirit of God. That looks like grasping at straws. But my main point here is what does this say about Jesus? I've spoken with many of you in the last few weeks and something that has come up, maybe I've just been looking for it, but something that has been coming up is the fact that shame still reigns in God, among God's people. It's still present. We understand that we're guilty, but we also have a sense of shame, some of it appropriate, some of it not. But what does this say about Jesus and his kingdom? And that is the ashamed are welcome here. You are in the company of those who have felt shame. God is interested in you. He's interested in people who feel shame. Jesus came not just for your guilt, but for your shame. Let's hang things on that theme for this morning. Jesus came not just for your guilt, but for your shame. And shame, of course, is everyone's problem. Uh, shame is everyone's problem. It is a disease that we received from, uh, from Adam. Um, his rebellion uh, introduced shame that is still here. And you remember what characterized or what was the fallout or, or what was the consequent of his, of his sin. After he sinned, uh, he and his wife hid themselves from God's presence. Why? Because he was naked, figuratively and literally. Ashamed people um, are, um, are naked and feel exposed, and often, as in Adam's case, are properly exposed. 
So there's, there's, there's a sense of nakedness. There's also a sense of exclusion. Uh, they were prohibited from remaining in God's garden and in the presence of God as it was focused in that special way in the Garden of Eden. They were banned from Eden, so they were excluded, never to be allowed back in. They were naked, they were excluded, but also because they were guilty and felt that in their shame, they were unclean and they were contaminated. Those three elements uh, are, are part and parcel of the experience of being shamed or feeling shame, a sense of exclusion, a sense of nakedness, a sense of being unclean. And that is our human problem. Our human problem. The original sin is not what Adam did. Original sin is the backwash or the consequences of that first sin on absolutely everybody who has ever lived. That's original sin. We feel it today. Remember, however, that God, that there is a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt, focus on the fact that, that only God's gaze matters. We are guilty before God. Only God can atone. He is the judge and we are all guilty. Shame is something a bit different. Shame indicates that all eyes are on you. You are naked and ashamed. And you need three things. Because you are naked, you need a covering. Sometimes we cover ourselves with an appearance of being upright people, but inside our hearts are broken. In sin and also in shame. You feel excluded. You're on the outside and you long for inclusion. The shamed longs to belong. You also feel contaminated and you are contaminated by your own sin or the sin of another and you need cleansing. Let's think for a minute about about this circumstance of being shamed over something that you have done. Shamed over something that you have done. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing that a high percentage of you would, would raise your hand if I asked you to, to do so in response to this question. Are there things in your life that you have done that you look back on years later still with powerful regret? Are there things that you have done in the deep, distant past that still affect you? You still feel shame about those things. It could be repeated failures. Things that only perhaps the closest people to you recognize are going on in you. Or maybe you're the only one that knows it, but it's a repeated failure. Poetically and sharply, as the proverb puts it, you are like that dog that returns to its vomit. And you feel vomitous about it. But there it is. Part of your history. Something that you've done. It's, but it's not just that you have failed. Here, here's the difference. It is not just that you have failed. 
but you feel like a failure. You feel like you are a failure. And you damn yourself as unworthy of any gift from God or another. Something that you've done. We're also talking about your, your problems and your sin, sin as being unique among all the world. You have a unique, a special kind of obnoxiousness before God and others that still shames you. These are things that you've done. You can also have shame for things that have been done to you. A parent who constantly chips away at a child. Hearing something like this, you'll never amount to anything. And a child can hear that voice for decades. A friend of mine, now about 70, recites language that his father leveled upon him as a little boy. You're like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Grow up. Sixty years later, he still hears that voice. That is shame speaking. Some in this room have been abused sexually. Perhaps it's quiet. Perhaps it's hidden. But it has happened. And those who have been those who have been uh, victims of sexual shame or sexual abuse have its their own kind of shame. A woman I went to college with put it this way. Um, three D's, you can remember this. Um, damaged, dirty, and different. Those are all expressions of shame. Damaged, dirty, and different. Another form of shame that we can feel uh, is um, just feeling about how we think about and feel about ourselves. And we typically are comparing ourselves to other people. And we are oftentimes, if we are shame tilted in that shame direction, are, are found wanting. Sometimes it's the the size or shape of our bodies, or even our noses. We feel some shame about that. Otherwise, our looks. We may feel shame as well because of the job that we have. It is not prestigious. And we go through life feeling like we're not measuring up because of that the work that we do. Others, even at work or at home, can constantly feel like they're being measured. They're not making the grade. They could be in school, they could be, could be related to a job, but they're constantly being measured and found wanting. Not necessarily because someone is saying something, but because that's the sense that they have. Someone at work gets credit for something that you've done and it just burns you. You're shamed because that's a performance-based kind of perspective. The reason I spell it out like this is because it is possible for people to think they are free from shame. They just don't think about it. They don't think they, they, they have shame in their life. 
I was talking to someone not while back, uh, not a, a while back, and I asked this person if they had, if they were ashamed, if they've had shame in their life, and they said no. And they sat there for a few minutes, a, a few seconds, 20 seconds, and then began listing point after point after point of shame in their life. They slowed down to think about it. I spin this out because I want you to hear that if you have shame, feel shame, that is just the kind of person that God is looking for. And there is appropriate shame. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 6 says of the Israelites uh, when they were uh, in a particularly sinful mode, if you will, were they ashamed when they committed abominations? The scripture asked the question. No, they are not ashamed at all. The scripture answers its own question. They do not know how to blush. Blushing is a benefit. Blushing is a blessing. Today, um, blushing is considered to be um, considered to be a shameful thing especially if you're blushing before God. Because that would be religious oppression. And what is described as true freedom and true righteousness today is living out um, uh, your individual expression, whatever the cost. Do you still know how to blush? Important question. Thank God if you do. Thank God if you do, because Jesus is the shame eater. Jesus is the shame eater. There are a couple of phrases I want you never to forget. (laughs) And one of them is double imputation. Double imputation is the notion that Jesus has taken our guilt, died in our place on the cross, And that it is double imputation because it is also marked by we ourselves who trust in this Christ receiving not only his forgiveness but also his righteousness that we are declared and considered righteous before God. We're used to saying, I know my sins have been imputed to Christ, but the Lord says it works both ways. His righteousness is imputed to you. It is hard for us to get this. Another phrase I want you to remember is simul justus et peccator. Do you remember that one? At the same time, simultaneous, uh, both just or righteous and a sinner. These things are hard to get into our minds that we can be at the same time justified, righteous before God, yet a sinner. But for the believer, Jesus has won once for all your righteous standing so that you may be considered by God as righteous and as sweet-smelling as Jesus. Make it plain. Double imputation. It works not just for guilt, but it works for shame. It works for shame. Jesus' genealogy establishes his identity as a shame eater. Joseph, in verse 16, is identified as Mary's husband. 
not as the father of Jesus. He's Mary's husband, and she was the mother of Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 2 um, uh, clarifies that up, up for us. In verse 35, the angel answered, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is, this is the sacred and mysterious um, identity of Jesus. As the Athanasian Creed, creed uh, spells it out for us, he is of divine nature. He is God, listen, from the essence of Trinity. From the essence of the Trinity. But he is also human, one of us, from the essence of his mother. He was without any reason for shame, but he was the most shamed. His reputation was stained as an illegitimate child now adult. We, his adversary said, we weren't born of sexual immorality. Connect the dots. He was an outcast. He had no place to call home. He went through the shame of an unjust trial and his crucifiers knew exactly what the Old Testament said about it. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Listen, he could have died a, a, a quiet, quick, private death. Trumped up charges, off with his head, done. It couldn't work that way because he died just not, not just for our guilt, but for our shame. He takes your shame upon, this is the double imputation part, he takes your shame upon himself and then gives you the dignity of the child of God. He is your shame eater too for what you have done. For what you have done. Uh, listen with me look, look to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Um, he carries your guilt. Um, he was excluded so that you brought near to, would be brought near to God as well as to other people. He was made filthy so that you could be clean and welcomed. All of that refers in part to his, his taking on our guilt. Let me read verses 5 and 6, Isaiah chapter 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We, are, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But Jesus also bears shame, not only for what you may have done, but shame for what was done to you. Jesus suffered indignities. He was despised and rejected. And God has a special place for sufferers because Jesus was familiar with your deepest suffering. Listen now to verses 3 and 4, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus is familiar with your deepest suffering. Finally, for who you are, he is your shame eater just for who you are. You may feel like an outcast. Maybe it's the color of your skin. Maybe it's your social class. Maybe it's because you went through a divorce and feel ashamed from that. Maybe it's because you're single and you really want to be married. The Incarnation is the story of condescension. Jesus became one with us so that we could become one with Him. In our shame, our shame eaten by the Savior. But finally, uh, resolving shame is a community project. It's a community project. Uh, It's a church thing. Um, A church is, is where we need and get a gospel drip. Okay? Where we need and get a gospel drip. Um, I didn't plan for some great different sermon for today. What I was counting on, this is just one more sermon of gospel drip. I was in the hospital for about uh, six days a few weeks ago, and I was on this IV, and I don't know why they do that, but they put it right here. And, and, uh, and, well, I had one on the other side, too. One on my back and one on my big toe. I mean, it was all over. But had one right here. No, I was kidding about the last two. I, was, I had one right here. And generally, it was, it was not too bad. But when they put in a different su- substance other than the heparin, it just burned and stung. You need a gospel drip that sometimes stings. It's not all medicine to make you feel good. Sometimes it stings. It is fighting against the disease that we got from Adam. The disease of self-centeredness. The disease of self-determination. The disease of self-dependence. And we need a constant drip of guilt-eating, shame-eating grace. Jesus Christ-elevating preaching steadily reorients you to grace. Christ-elevating preaching steadily orients you to grace. You're able to come out of hiding. You enjoy uh, the freedom that comes from humility and you are set free from shame's shackles. Ever since I heard... Uh, the name of the person who is becoming, going to be coming here as minister, I have been praying for him, for his love for Jesus, for his ability to preach Christ, and I've been praying, Lord, let him do it better than I do. Let him be excellent. Here is where we get what we need, but we also need to respond to it. We need to speak personally to Jesus about our shame. Speak, name it. Speak personally to Jesus about our shame. 
Remember, if you are familiar with shame, you're just the kind of person that God is looking for. So he's not turning his back on you when you begin to voice aspects of shame. He's given you the spirit that can make it possible. You come to the Lord, you speak personally with him, you identify yourself as one who is naked without clothing, and he gives you clothing, he covers you with his white, with his white garments. You, you are able to identify that in your shame you feel like you're an outcast, and he is the one who always welcomes you home. And you acknowledge as well in your, in your prayers that you are unclean and feel it. And through the work of the Spirit, he thoroughly washes you and honors you. If you're guilty, confess that sin. Describe it. As the confession says, repent of particular, my dad's accent from Maine, particular sins, particularly. Remember that one too. And he gives grace. But also bring him your shame. Remember, remember, the book of Hebrews says uh, that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother and sister. Chapter 2. He's not ashamed of you. But instead, as chapter 12 goes on to say, Jesus scorns and despises his shame on the cross. He's going to the cross and it's like he shakes it off. He thinks nothing of it. He scorns it. He scorns his shame. He despises his shame. So that you are free to despise your own shame. Listen, Jesus is not ashamed of you. You don't need to be ashamed of yourself either. Resolving shame is a community project. We need to find others to help us. We need to find others to help us remain uh, and find that freedom. We need to find people. I'm talking to you. If you are struggling with shame, listen carefully. Find people who are humbled by the Spirit and associate with them. People who recognize that the Christian life is not easy. That there is a Romans 7 battle in each of our hearts. And the people that we associate must get that. It is hard. So you find people that, as one Puritan writer put it, you know four things. You know Christ. He's come to cover you and bring you home. You know the scriptures. It is true. Your feelings are not. You know your own heart. And you know Satan's devices. You need to know those four things. And as we are helping one another in this process, the first thing we do is listen to each other. We listen. We raise. We are, are willing to admit our own shameful deeds to prime the pump, as it were, but we listen. We listen to understand. Remember that Eli missed Hannah's shame, calling her a drunk, and only made things worse. He didn't listen. He drew, jumped to conclusions. You listen. Secondly, you speak. You speak of Christ who was naked so that you will always 
be covered. You speak of Christ who was an outcast, so you are always welcome back home. You speak of Christ who made the unclean clean, so you will always be washed. And you don't forget it. Your eyes are on Christ. And you live in that humble repentance and joy. If this is new for you today, speak to Jesus about shame and about guilt. Name them. And remember that what you give to Christ, He takes. And what He has won for you, He gives. Gladly. The heart of God is drawn to the shameful. Loves to give you what you need. Let's pray. Father, we are are, um, thankful this day for the precious work of the Lord Jesus Christ. How pertinent is the gospel? How precise it is in identifying our needs and providing our solution. We give you praise today. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Please stand with me.